0: I've been listening to your voice for so long, so often, and I had no idea what uh, image to put to it. So I'm happy to see a uh, friendly. <laughs> A friendly visage. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's funny, actually, one previous time, I did a video call with a producer who'd been listening to the podcast and wanted to do a TV series based on it. And he said, the first thing he said was, I never realized you had a Rick Rubin beard. Ah, nice. (laughs) Did anything become of that project? Well, it's on the back burner while other things happen. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so no.
0: Cool. Oh, good to know, because I feel like that's uh, a smart idea. And I hope that it happens. Yeah. How many years into the series are you now?
1: It's coming up to five years. It's about four years and eight months, something like that. I started in October 2018, actually on my 40th birthday. So, And the original plan was it would finish on my 50th birthday, doing one a week. But then the episodes got bigger, and so (laughs) that's not happening.
0: So from its inception, you viewed it as a 10-year project.
1: Yeah. Well, it's 500 songs. The original the original plan was to do an episode a week, but then as the episodes have got longer and as I've had various life things in the way, you know, I started this pre-covid and pre the insanity of the last few years. So if the original plan was to do an episode a week, get it done in 10 years, but as it is, it's going to end up taking more like 20, I think. So
0: it's a real benefit to society and musical history this project and it's a beautiful way to take in the information and i'm learning so much from it so it's it's um, very enjoyable
1: thank you thanks very good of you to say the intention was always to do something worthwhile you know i have this idea in my head of it being my equivalent to those big omnium gathering books that um academics in the 18th through early 20th century would write you know on the origin of the species or das capital or uh decline and fall of the roman empire those kind of things where they just do this massive massive big project that takes them a decade and covers everything and in my ego that's sort of what what i'm thinking of it as but but basically yeah, it, i i want it i want it to be something that is helpful to the world and it, it and that sounds like a massively egotistical a, mass- a massively big-headed thing to say, but it, I just like it. It is meant to be of use to people, you know.
0: I think it really is, and the difference between those tombs that you refer to is because of the way that it's being delivered on a weekly, semi-weekly basis in digestible chunks. It's almost like we're we're um, we have our hands held through the process. Yeah, and it's much more digestible than uh, you know the the three thousand page book.
1: Yeah, although some of the recent episodes have been <laughs> almost indigestible by themselves are so long. But you know,
0: I I want to ask about that because the the earlier episodes seem to be shorter, and the episodes yeah. seem to be getting longer and longer, and only to to my ears only better because it seems like there's much more information in them now, whereas before now I might go back and listen to an early episode and I feel like, oh, he's barely starting the story and it ends.
1: Yeah, yeah. My original intention was to keep everything to be about half an hour per episode, mostly because I'm ADHD. I don't have a great attention span myself and I don't a bit like the old Alfred Hitchcock thing you know the the length of a film should, should be proportional to the endurance of the human bladder i don't want people to be <laughs> bored by by what i'm doing i don't i don't want to go into huge massive long long episodes but i've had to recently and the the reason for that is the the stuff I started with, there's basically little or no information out there about it, about any of these people. You know, there's like one book about Sister Rosetta Tharpe. There's like one book about the Ink Spots. There are no books at all about Jesse Belvin. Um, there was one book about Vince Taylor, but it's in French. You know, and so if you put together a half hour podcast on those people, that is often covering all the information that exists on those people. Like, literally, the, the Jesse Belvin episode, that's like half an hour. And Jesse Belvin's niece posted in the comments of that episode that she had been waiting 60 years for somebody for somebody to do her uncle justice like that, because that was all the information that, that exists on that man. Whereas when you cover, say, the Beatles, <laughs> there are so many books on just the Beatles out there that you could literally spend your entire life reading them and still not have all the information. And the thing is, when you're covering somebody like that, you have to tell multiple stories. You have to you have to cover the information that you would have to cover if somebody had never actually heard of the Beatles, because the whole point of this is for it to be a history and to guide people through things. And I found early on that there are people out there who haven't heard of even the major big acts. You know, when I did the Hank Williams episode, there were people I knew, musicians I knew, who had never heard of Hank Williams. So you have to cover all the basic stuff that you would expect everybody knows. You also have to cover all the stuff that the people who know everything about that band expect to have in. Then you have to put in something that is interesting and new for those people so that so they're not going to get bored by just hearing the same thing over again. And then you often have to tell something different, which is what you're actually, the point of the episode itself, you know. And, and so you have to fit in all these things. And there is... A much greater audience expectation also for the later episodes. I did an episode on the on Jefferson airplane that was 90 minutes long, and half of it was complaints that I hadn't covered one medium-sized hit from hit by Jefferson Starship from the mid 70s in the episode, with there being that much that much more information out there and that many more people knowing parts of that information that you have you have to cover more. Now that's going to change again as we get further on because at the moment I'm in the most over-signified part of rock history i'm currently doing episodes set in 1968 and sort of 67 through about 72 that so-called classic rock era every single band has 20 to 50 books written about them and tons of journalism from from that era and documentaries made about them and biopics and all this kind of stuff by the late 70s the information is fragmented a lot more so people are have fewer expectations, but this this period, the the sort of Rolling Stone five hundred greatest albums of all time period I'm in at the moment, there's so much information that needs to be encapsulated to do the job properly that sometimes you end up with a three hour episode and that's just the way it is, yeah.
0: I noticed at the beginning of the whatever started in sixty eight, I can't remember which episode it was, you talked about how the themes in the warning at the beginning of the episode, you said the themes now for the next thirty episodes or so are going to get darker. Yeah, m- more to be upset about, and it's interesting that that warning comes right at what we consider maybe the greatest golden era of music.
1: Yeah, that connection is yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, the thing is, one of, one of the reasons we consider it the greatest golden era of music is you've got you've got all these people who were mythologized and p- part of the reason they were mythologized is because a lot of them died very young a, l- a lot of them were doing a lot of drugs there were a lot of things you know in the next 30 episodes or whatever I've got to cover the Manson murders I've got to cover Altamont you know there, there are some big horrible things that happened but but they tie in so intimately to this story and I think part of the reason that that era is so mythologized is because of the tragedy that accompanied it because you know if Jimi Hendrix or Brian Jones or whoever had lived to be 80, they would have made some terrible records. They would they would have you know they would have done some things that destroyed that destroyed their reputation. You only have to compare the reputations of Brian Jones with Eric Clapton, you know. You look at the way people talk about Clapton now, and the, and it's all, it's all he's a racist, tired old man, he should shut up and go away. And people would be saying that about hendrix they would be saying that about brian jones they'd be saying it's a, well probably not racist in hendrix's case but you, you know what i mean maybe they would be saying we, these, we can't say and so the fact that a lot of these people died young aided in their becoming mythological aided in them not doing a, a terrible christmas album in the mid 80s or whatever you know and so i, th- I think that ties, to, ties together a lot as well although one of the other things i try and show in the in the series is that while there are peaks and troughs in, in music history. There is always good music being made. There was good music being made in 1960, which is a year that's generally considered dreadful, you know, and you, if you pick up the highlights from any era, you're going to find some great stuff there, you know.
0: One of the things I love about the episodes is that they, they give us a backstory that may not be obvious. Example, yeah. I learned a tremendous amount about the geography of... The United Kingdom from the Animals episode. Yeah. I didn't know any any of that. And it yeah. plays into the story. And it's fantastic because I'm getting to learn all interesting things about different aspects completely unexpected. Yeah. How do you decide which thread to pull? Because there are so many different angles you can come into these stories from. And do you choose which ones you're going to use? And are there some that you discard, even though there may be potential good stories?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. I I tend to plot out, not an exhaustive detail, but every, what was originally a one-year chunk, every 50 episodes, which I also package, lightly rewrite the scripts and put them out as books, and they're 50-episode books. And I try and create a narrative arc over those 50 episodes with a beginning and an end, and I plot that out as as a chunk. You know, I always knew that I was going to start covering Vietnam with the last Train to Clarksville episode, for example, and... There are always three or four options as to how I can tell a story. There are all there are always one song that can be substituted in for another. And often I'll get some pushback from listeners because they don't they don't see the bigger picture. Like I had some complaints about covering I Fought the Law at all, um, the Bobby Fuller four track because people were saying that's that's only a minor thing the Bobby Fuller 4 weren't important but I was laying down stuff that plays out along the next 20 episodes in that about the influence of the mafia on um, the recording industry about the growth of the LA music scene about about the influence of Hollywood in the LA music scene and so on and the Bobby Fuller 4 story as well as being an interesting story in its own right and the precursor to all the early deaths we see coming up later is a way I can get all that information in one episode. So yes, I'm I'm planning out always I know exactly where the, the series is going to end on episode five hundred. I know a few milestones I've got to get to hit to get there. And I plan out a narrative arc over the 50, 50 episodes chunks. At the beginning of each fifty, do you decide on all fifty? Or how many
0: yes. do you decide You decide 50 songs at a time, typically, to get to 500, 10
1: sets of 50. Yes. Uh, When I I started doing this right at the beginning, I made a list of 200 songs that I knew needed to be on there no matter what. I first made a list of the ones that I needed to tell the story. Then I looked at things like the Rolling Stone list of 500 greatest singles, the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame list, those kind of things. Not to copy those lists. The majority of those aren't in there. But to understand that I know why I'm not covering stuff that I'm not covering, and to understand that, to make sure I haven't missed anything obvious. You don't want to get to 1970 and have somebody say, hang on, you didn't do an episode on the Rolling Stones. So I put together a list of about 200 songs that I, I knew needed to be needed to be in there. Then at the 50-episode 50, 50 mark, the 100-episode mark, the 150-episode mark, I've then plotted out the next 50 episodes as a group, with the, with the beginning and end, and like little little resonances to to make the 50-episode archetype together. Like episode 51 was the episode on the Million Dollar Quartet. Episode 100 was the, f- the first episode on the Beatles, the Fab Four. So it's foursomes at either end. Episode 101 was on Telstar. Episode 150 was on All You Need Is Love, which was a satellite broadcast. And so, you know, the, creating these little things where if you go back 50 episodes, and think, oh, yes, he was laying a track to this and I will put together the 50 episode list just before I start writing the script for episode 50 or 100 or 150 or whichever and so I know where I'm going. Now I will occasionally change that but it's it's usually only a matter of shuffling around a tiny bit as I realise that the, the chronology of the story I'm telling works better with if I cover this episode before that one or you know that kind of little detail but it's, it's generally a very fixed 50 episode list. And then while I'm doing those 50 episodes, I'm making notes for the next 50, you know, I'm, I'm noting, okay, so like I said in the last episode on the temptations that I'm going to finish their story. So I know that at some point after episode 200, I have to do it. I have to do a final temptations episode, which will probably be Papa was a rolling stone, you know, and that, that kind of thing. You mentioned the feedback that you get. How much does yeah. the feedback that you get impact the future episodes? Not at all. Great. Good news. It can affect, to an extent, how much information I put in a story. But I know that there are episodes I am going to be doing that people will hate. I mean, I won't say what it is now because I have a policy of not saying what episodes come when. But I will say that episode 184, I expect the audience to go Utterly mad about that one, like furious, wanting to kill me. Mad that I have covered that song at all. So I'll say I'll say that now. The only thing it does it is it has, like I say, it has made me make some of the episodes longer because I've realised that people have an expectation for more information on certain bands, or because I realise that people don't have the information that I assume was general background knowledge for everybody. So I have to put that in, but it hasn't affected the story I'm telling. It hasn't affected. The songs I'm choosing, it hasn't affected the artists I'm choosing one iota. And what it sometimes does is, um, I fund the podcast by having a Patreon, and people support that. And th- there, I create a bonus episode, which they started as being ten minutes. They're now often more like half an hour. And if I if I get a sense that a lot of people are expecting an episode on some band that I've just that is just not going to turn up. I will do a Patreon bonus episode on on that band. They're shorter. They take less time. They take less effort, and they're not part of the main narrative. But they're often quite interesting, and so I will have people ask me, "Why haven't you done an episode on F- Frankie Valley?" And it'll be like, "Yeah, Frankie Valley is not part of this story, but I can do a bonus episode on Frankie Valley." You know that that kind of thing. But as far as affecting the, the main narrative that you get, if you just listen to the main podcast or, or buy the books based on the podcast, no feedback has affected, has affected what I'm doing there at all. And it won't. Great. Uh, That's very good news.
0: How much of the information in the podcast did you know before starting the project?
1: Much of it, but no, nowhere near all. I wouldn't have started the project if I wasn't fairly sure of my knowledge. I'm autistic, and I'm also hyperlexic, which means I read a lot, and I, I have special interests, and I learned to read very, very young. So, literally from the age of seven, I was reading like biographies of Bill Haley. I was reading books on the history of popular music. I was reading, it. and so I have a lot of this information in me. But at the same time, the, the artist that I am. Um, an expert on there are artists where I know their greatest hits there are, and there are a handful of artists where I know that person made that record that's important don't really know anything else about that person need to learn that and even for the people who I'm sort of expert on I need to sometimes figure out the connections between them and other artists and those can those can sometimes be surprising like to take the episode on All You Need is Love by the Beatles, which covers the um, bigger than Jesus thing, I didn't realise until I did a sort of deep dive into the Beatles in 66, 67, that the teen magazine that published the bigger than Jesus quote was edited by Danny Field, who went on to be... The Ramones did a song about it. We worked with Iggy Pop. He was best friends with Jim Morrison, all these kind of things. I hadn't realized that that, that connection there until I did a very deep dive on the Beatles in 66, even though I'd read 100 books on the Beatles by that point already. So I tend to, as a sort of rule of thumb, I, t- I tend to read about four books per episode on top of the knowledge I already have and take take notes of those and again it varies from episode to episode some episodes like like the second the second monkeys one i could basically write on autopilot without having to check anything out at all whereas the the grateful dead one i just did i had to read i think something like 25 books to to get that one done you know and it it just it just depends on on the length of the episode and on the um, cuz sometimes you will know that you'll have to do a lot of digging to find a little detail that you know is there you'll i know this must connect to that I I know it. You can feel the patterns in the history if you like, and then you have to go digging, digging, and digging, and digging until you find the find what the actual connection is, and that kind of thing. I often don't know in advance, but as far as Johnny Otis produced Big Mama Thornton and John John Hammond discovered Bob Dylan, and those those kind of stories, I I know all that stuff better than I know much about my sibling's life, you know. <laughs> so
0: the most recent the Grateful Dead episode. It's the first Mm. episode that thus far I found impenetrable. I've listened to maybe the first seven or 10 minutes and was so disconnected from what was being said that I don't even know my way in. So I have to give it more time because I know that eventually that'll change. Um, but I I just want to share that that
1: first, for whatever reason, (laughs) it's like a world that it's difficult to access. It is a very difficult, inaccessible episode, and it, it was a difficult, inaccessible episode for me to write, and there are reasons that become clear as you listen to it why it's so difficult. I expected that episode to get an entirely negative reaction from everybody. I I had a negative reaction to it while I was writing it. It was a difficult episode. It's not a, not an enjoyable episode for me in any way, but... The overwhelming feedback seems to have been that by the time you get to the end, it works for people, which I'm I'm honestly surprised by. It's a very, very experimental episode. I would not be surprised at all if people hadn't liked it. I, I would not be surprised if you find it an unlistenable one. <laughs> I've, I found it an almost unwritable one. Episodes going forward will not be like that. That one is a, very much a special case for reasons that get explained in the course of the episode. But yes, it's a departure and it's not, that's not the new normal for the story, you know.
0: (laughs) I love the idea that in the context of a series that there can be aberrations and that a story can be told in a different way. And even if it's difficult or challenging in in a new way, I think it adds to the overall gravitas of the work
1: yeah there, there are experiments in storytelling in in, in the podcast. the majority of it's as you know is fairly meat and potatoes but i do think uh, i do do things like the episode on say good vibrations where that starts off with talk, talking about the greek myth of orpheus and then goes into talking about the invention of the theremin and those kind of things and i have to make this interesting for myself as well as for the listeners and you have to stretch and you have to grow and you have to try different things and sometimes those different things don't work now happily with the grateful dead episode most people seem to think it has worked and they they actually seem to think it worked far better than i do i i don't have to distance from it myself i just i just look at it and see this six week period it took me where i was working 10 hours a day every day for six weeks to get to get that thing done and it felt like it was never going to be ended so i couldn't physically keep doing that as a regular thing you know i'd literally die but there will, there will be other occasions further further down the line where I where I try other kinds of narrative experimentation where I try I try other things I might do a super compressed episode where it's only ten, only 10 minutes long but it, it tries to tell the entire story in that time you know i but the the bulk of it will always still be these half hour to two and a half hour long fairly straightforward narratives because you know, it, it's it's good that the Beatles' White Album has Revolution Number no. Nine on it, but you, but if, if Revolution Number no. Nine had been the only thing the Beatles had ever put out, you, they they wouldn't have been. You know, yeah, have, have I want to hold your hand as well? You know,
0: you mentioned that the Second Monkeys episode you could have written in your sleep. What's your connection to the Monkeys?
1: I, I was in Monkeys fandom, uh, which sounds like, sounds like a strange thing to say, but um, one of the things I'm trying to do in in the podcast is talk about how a lot of bands that. The sort of critical consensus on has been fairly negative. We're actually very, very good, and I happen to like the monkeys a lot. I, I wrote a book about the monkeys in about 2011, um, and I've, I've been connected to monkeys fandom quite, quite a bit. And so, and I'd read all the books on the band. And luckily for, for me, in that respect, the, the monkeys don't have a vast literature behind them like the Beatles or Dylan or something like that. There's maybe. 15 books in, t- in total on them so I'd read all those already so I had the entire narrative all- already there in my head and I could just go bam 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 done you know I'd, I'd pull out a book to check it check a date but that, that's about it with that one you know tell me about your monkey book I love the monkeys by the way all right cool <laughs> most of the best people do Um, my monkey book is called monkey music and it's just a song by song analysis uh, discographical thing of uh, the entire monkeys catalog it's not like the kind of thing i do with 500 songs i I feel a bit awkward about recommending anything i wrote before the start of 500 songs to be honest because i think my own writing has got so much better since then that i'm sort of semi-ashamed about anything i did before that but it is it's a track-by-track guide to the entire recorded output of the monkeys all the all the outtakes, all the live recordings, all things like the Dolan's Jones Boys and Heart album from the 70s or the um, soundtrack album of The Point that, that Mickey Dolan's and Davy Jones did in the 70s. Those, those kind of things are all discussed in there. And there are very few books out there that treat the monkey's music as music as opposed to a sort of cultural phenomenon that could be written off. So I, I, I saw the need to do one, I, I did it myself. And that, that meant that I had all the narrative material already in my head from that, you know.
0: It feels like also the um, your ability to deliver the message in the podcast has gotten better and better. If you listen to the early episodes, they tend to be sl- read slower. The new ones feel like you're talking to us and it feels confident
1: yeah. and very clear dissemination of information. I'm. I'm glad you think so. Um, the reason for the slowness in the early episodes is me sort of overcompensating. I'm aware that my accent is not always the most comprehensible to Americans, and also I'm a very, very fast thinker. Like I'm, I'm still speaking now much more slowly than I think. If I was talking normally, I'd talk like this, and this is how I'd be talking. You wouldn't be able to understand the word I'm saying. So when I started, it was I'm going to read it very slowly and very clearly so everybody can understand every word and as I've got more used to what the audience can accept from me as I've got more used to how the audience react to my accent I can do this thing that I'm doing now which is sort of halfway between my normal very strongly accented gabble and the podcast voice that was doing at the beginning and also you can't keep this up if you're talking for three and a half hours, if nothing else, it would make the episode seven hours, you know, so I've got more of to what my listeners can cope with. And also I think my listeners have got more of a to my voice as well, but I am very, I'm very aware that, um, I've spent a lot of time in the U S and people have great difficulty understanding a Northern English accent in this, in the States. So it it was my effort to accommodate them. And I'm still doing that a little, but nowhere near as much, you know. Yeah, I also think I have become more comfortable doing it because, you know, you get positive feedback. You get people saying nice things. Oh, maybe, maybe I'm actually okay at this, you know. It's fantastic. I'm very happy you're doing it. Thank
0: you. So the monkeys are viewed in the mainstream as in somewhat of a negative way, as you, you mentioned, or, or yeah. other, other. When, yeah. interestingly, their records, the band on their records were often the wrecking crew. The same people who played on the Birds, the same people who played on Simon and well,
1: Garfunkel. That's actually one of the myths about them. The Wrecking Crew did play on some Monkeys records, mostly actually album tracks produced by Mike Nesmith. The early Monkey singles, the band on that was actually a band called the Candy Store Profits, which was Boyce and Hearts band that they that they played with. One of the one of the things I'm trying to sort of debunk in the background is. This this belief that the Wrecking Crew were the be-all and end-all of of 60s session musicians, uh, because one of the things we find in looking at looking at music history is that you have these periods of overcorrection, and there was a period where for a long time the Wrecking Crew weren't credited for anything at all, and then there's this, then there's become this period where the Wrecking Crew are credited for every single record that came out in in, in the states in the 60s, and partly that's because Carol Kay, the bass player on a lot of those records is her recollection does not always match the the recollection of anybody else or the documentation. Put it that way, mm-hmm. uh, so she will say that they played on Simon and Garfunkel records like "I Am a Rock" or um, "Homeward Bound" or "Sounds of Silence." But then you look you look at the actual documentation, and a lot of these were recorded in New York by New York players, not not by the Wrecking Crew. But yeah, it's def- it's definitely true that a lot of bands were using session musicians. You know one record that, uh, that the Wrecking Crew did play on, Freak Out by the Mothers of Invention. That's a Wrecking Crew recording with, with some extra guitar by Zappa, and I think Ray Strader and Jimmy Carl Black are on there as well. But, you know, the vast majority of the instrumentation on that is the Wrecking Crew. But you would never, ever get people saying, Frank Zappa was a manufactured teen pop kind of thing. You know, it, it's, it's, it's just absurd. And the Monkees did, of course, end up playing on a lot of their own recordings Everything after the first, well, not everything after the first two albums, but the third and fourth album, the instrumentation is primarily the monkeys on that. But also, there was this idea that the only valid way to make music is to create a self-contained band that does everything, which there are all sorts of assumptions baked into that. All sorts of assumptions, some of them very classist and racist and sexist and so on because if you look at the vast majority of black artists in history haven't been self-contained bands The fact the vast vast majority of women artists in history haven't never been self-contained bands they've been people who've used these these other ways the idea that if you hire a guitar player to play on your track that that makes the track invalid it's nonsensical it makes sense if you then lay claim to the guitar player's part but that that isn't what was happening
0: you know it almost seems like the opposite is true, is that the, the standard was for Sessions players to play on records, and the Absolutely. exceptions were the Beatles. And even then, George Martin was playing along.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Beatles had George Martin, they had a lot of orchestral players, they had Andy White playing drums on the first, first record, you know. Now, it is true that most British bands of the time largely played their own instruments, often with the exception of drums you would often have bobby graham or somebody getting going into the studio to replace to replace a drummer which is why george martin thought that thought that was perfectly okay to do for the beatles first single but in the american bands yeah pretty much every record that came out in the states up to about sort of 67 ish the beach boys we were using session musicians though again also that's one of those things where it's gone the, the myth has grown to the point that it says they never played on their records. They played on most of their records early on, but they soon got in session musicians to cover for them. The Birds, first first couple of records, lots lots of session players on those. And ob- obviously, you've got, you've got all the, the vocal groups your Simon and Calls, your Mamas and Papas, those kind of people but who had one acoustic guitar player in the band. They weren't playing all those instruments, obviously. There were always self contained bands. But weirdly, some of the self-contained bands who did play on their own records like the association they get thought of as a, a sort of manufactured pop band their entire first album they played they played everything on it themselves but because it's this sort of sweet orchestrated pop thing the, the assumption is just that they were they were a manufactured group and i i am not going to sit there and say say that motown records and Stax records were somehow artistically inferior to you know some, some mediocre jam band from san francisco just just because the mediocre jam band knew how to knew how to play the guitar and the the temptations didn't you know it's an ahistorical perspective that's that's been put back on a lot of these things to the detriment of understanding the music and i think in the day i don't think there was any
0: expectation that the artist played anything
1: none, none if you read um the autobiography of Howard Kalen from the Turtles, he talks about how the, the fact that the Turtles played on their own records was because the record company were cheapskates and wouldn't pay for the session musicians. You know That was that was the way it was thought of. Playing on your own records was a, was a sign that your record label weren't interested in funding you. You know, it, it wasn't. Um, and the thing, the thing that needs to be remembered is that the method of production was so different back then. You would go into a studio for one four-hour session. You would be expected to cut four complete tracks in that time. Now, your average rock band musician is not Earl Palmer, is not Hal Blaine, is not Carol Kay, is not Tommy Tedesco. They will take a couple of dozen takes to to get a part down, not because they couldn't play it on stage, but just because they are not inhumanly perfect. And you had to be inhumanly perfect to do an entire take as a, no layering, no multi-tracking, everybody playing at once, a take that was perfect you have to do four, four of them in a four-hour session. You you are going to hire professionals who can do the job. That's just common sense. It's not a, a matter of them not being able to do it. It's a it's a matter of we've got half an hour left to cut to cut this track in. You know, you you, you can't do twenty takes in that time. You know, and that's that's a reality that pretty much ended by the late sixties. And you get into these things where people are spending you know six months to a year to five years to make an album. And then, yes, you can can try stuff in the studio. You can learn the parts in the studio. You can make your mistakes. And you notice that the Beatles start stretching out as the 60s go on, spending more and more time in the studio. That's because the the first couple of albums, they're playing their live set. They're playing stuff that they had played live a million times. You can go in and record 10 tracks in 10 hours, bam, 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 bam. If you've played them three times a night every night for the past two years, you can't you can't do that if it's a new song, but the session musicians could and that's why that's why they existed. And once that pressure was off, yes, people stopped having professional session players play everything. but that that isn't an artistic thing. That's a financial thing as much as anything else.
0: It's also a very particular skill set. Playing in the studio is different than playing for a general audience, just a different of course. It's a of different course. animal. And with studio time being so scarce, especially at that period of time, these artists would have, you know, maybe several hours in a year to ever be in a recording yeah. studio and to expect them to be able to deliver the way someone who spends their entire life in a recording studio recording. It's just a different, Absolutely. it's a different animal.
1: Absolutely. It's it's a, it's a totally different thing. And this, this kind of thing is what I hope to get across by doing a chronological history of, of the music or, are very close to chronological history. It's to show how these things develop, to show how these things change, to show how the assumptions change, the technologies change, and as a result, what was what was normal in the studio changed. As a result, the sound of records changed. As a result, the expectations of records changed. You know, you don't really get the rock band as a thing until sort of nineteen sixty-seven, as as a sort of cultural phenomenon. There are bands that we would now consider rock bands before that, but they they're sort of there was no sort of default idea of a rock band, you know. Now, if you think rock band, you think one or two guitars, bass drums, mostly white men, electric electric guitars, maybe keyboards, maybe not. But nineteen sixty four six—that's that sort of time. A rock, well, there would there would be a rock and roll band or a pop band or a rhythm and blues band because it not wouldn't be called rock bands until a bit later. But they might have a saxophone player. They might even have a whole horn section, because the The whole idea of rock as a thing in itself hadn't properly congealed yet. And there were many other options happening and many, many other possibilities happening. And those possibilities steadily closed off as the years and decades went on. And now people project back and they assume that the Rolling Stones in 1963 were trying to do the same kind of thing that the Rolling Stones in t- 2023 are doing, you know, that there was a clear career path there that you know when, when they were playing on the Il pie island they were thinking yeah in 30 years time we're going we're to be pl- we're going to be playing Wembley stadium you know there's a whole a whole other world in ter- in terms of what people were doing what people were trying to do what people were thinking about then that, that gets lost when you project these things back on people do you think the reason for the
0: archetype rock band in our imagination, and anything varying from that is wrong, is because the Beatles are the Beatles? If it weren't for
1: the Beatles, would we have that same vision? We wouldn't, because I'm I'm only sort of getting into this in the podcast at the moment, but most of the ideas we have about the rock band now basically come from ideas that were promoted by Rolling Stone magazine in the late 60s. And they had very, very clear ideas about what was cool and what wasn't, and what was good music and what wasn't. And I frankly disagree with a lot of their ideas. But what they were doing was from, was promoting very heavily people who had switched from folk music to rock music after hearing the Beatles and had followed the Beatles' lineup pretty much exactly. Had, had gone for two guitars, guitars-based drums before the Beatles hit America. The only bands that were two guitar based drums bands basically were surf bands. Um, not 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 just the Beach Boys, but you know you, the Safaris and Dick Dale and the, the Deltones and all those kind of things. And the rest of the American music industry was much more varied and much wider in britain there were more two guitars based drum bands because because the shadows were so big pre beatles and people sort of copied that model but still you had your Manfred bands with the, the, you know people people who could switch between Hammond organ and, and flute you, you know and you had lots of hammond players actually lots and lots of um bands with sax and hammond organ and they all sort of died out in the late 60s when the American bands then start feeding back over to Britain. But the Beatles is, is a crucial thing where they define what is cool in the eyes of Rolling Stone magazine and the, the people who copied, copied the Beatles in the States. And that's where you get this very fixed idea of a rock band from, yeah.
0: Let's look at the conversation between the United States and Britain. Music, yeah. what led to what? And back and forth, yeah. From,
1: from from as early as you can think of. Well, the conversation between the Britain and the States was rather one-sided for a long time because of a mutual ban that came into in the nineteen thirties between the two com- countries' musicians' unions, um, which meant that, for example, when Ray Noble, the British band leader from the thirties, went over to the States, he had to hire an entire band of American of American musicians. It was just Ray Noble, the conductor, and Al Boley the singer, who were allowed over. And actually, the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Glenn Miller was Ray, Ray Noble's band leader in, in America, and his group built up from that, basically. But for a long time, this meant that you couldn't have bands and musicians moving back and forth between the two countries. Both, was that both directions? or Both both directions, yep. So if Glenn
0: Miller and his orchestra wanted to play
1: in the UK, he could not? No, no, they couldn't. There, were, there was a total ban on American musicians playing in Britain or British musicians playing in America. And this lasted until the late 50s, at which point you have people like Lonnie Donegan had, had a hit in the States, he was allowed to go over to the to America. The band was strictly for musicians, so it didn't affect singers. So, like Johnny Ray could come over to Britain and, and perform, but he couldn't bring any musicians with him. And then when when Lonnie Donegan went over to the States to perform, uh, he did a few TV shows and stuff, he had to be backed by the Johnny Burnett view. He wasn't allowed to play his guitar. He, he was only allowed to sing. But this meant that the cultural transmission was basically one way, America influencing Britain and not the other way around because you had Hollywood films coming over here and pe- people would hear music in those. You had also the armed forces network radio in Western Europe would had a lot of American service bases in Britain and also in Germany and stuff. You could hear German radio from Britain. So people would hear American radio a lot, but Americans wouldn't hear British music. And, and so the influence was all very much one way, but it was sort of a dilute influence and, an influence without the proper cultural context, which meant that the British people were picking up a lot of weird ideas about what American music actually was. There's a line that I often quote, which I think I think was Charles Shaw Murray said it first. I can't, if I'm wrong, it was somebody somebody said it, but um, I quote I quote the line often. When Bo did these things, "I'm a man," he means "I'm a man," so don't call me boy honky. When the Yardbirds sing "I'm a man," they mean "I'm a grown man now, mummy," so you can't make me tidy my room. You know, British people were taking these American things without the context of the culture from which they came and building a new culture in their imagination from it. And early on in Britain, much of the early British rock and roll was awful, just really, really bad. And weirdly, a lot a lot of early British rock and roll was attempts at copying Bill Haley and the Comets, rather, or, or even like Bill Haley and the Comets imitators like Freddie Bell and the Bellboys, rather than copying Elvis or people like that. In the late 50s, though, you start to get the first little bits of two-way transmission because the musicians' unions, I think it was 1956, it might have been a year or two later, but they came up with a one-in-one-out system where an American musician could play Britain if a British musician was allowed to go over and play America, and the musician had to be somebody who played the same instrument. So you know, Louis Armstrong could come over and play Britain but there was some random trumpet player from Devon who who got to go and tour America. Otherwise, Louis Armstrong would be putting this trumpet player out of business, which, of course, is a nonsense. You know, he's Louis Armstrong. Trumpet players are not fungible, but that was the ruling. And so then you start getting people like Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and so on coming over here. And what tends to happen is it tends to be the American artists who are are slightly past their prime in the States still have some glamour in Britain as an American rock and roll hero. So, you know, Gene Vincent, one hit wonder in the US, Bebop a then nothing else. Two years later, he's coming to Britain and he's headlining and he's a massive star and he brings Eddie Cochran over, who again in the States was not a big star at the time. And just this phenomenon over here. And they end up performing over here a lot. And those particular performers tend to shape what British rock and roll becomes. And so you have a lot more influence of people like Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent and of the American blues musicians that Chris Barber got to bring over, people like Muddy Waters, Sister Rosetta Tharpotis Otis Spann. They have an outsized influence in Britain because they're the ones that you can go and see. You know, Elvis isn't touring Britain because Elvis can make... Well, also because the colonel would be, would be arrested for murder if he'd left, left America. But Elvis wasn't touring Britain because he could make enough money in America. But, you know, Gene Vincent was touring Britain. So Gene Vincent becomes this big, massive thing over here because you can go and see him, but, but he's a proper American rock and roller. And then very slowly, very slowly, you start you start getting British records being released in America. Uh, but they, t- they tend to be weird things like Telstar by um, the Tornadoes Novelty. or like Lonnie Morgan Yeah. And they're, they're, they're not part of a big thing. You do occasionally get americans covering british records like uh, del shannon covered covered the beatles before the beatles had a hit in the states you know because people of that era are always on the lookout for a big hit song from somewhere but it it tends to be cover versions rather rather than um, the the records themselves and it's only really in when the beatles hit america that the influence becomes two-way in early 64 that's also the time when there becomes far more, far more interconnection between the two countries because suddenly a lot of American pro- promoters desperately want a lot of British musicians, which means that they have to a lot of American musicians have to be able to play in Britain. So you get a lot more tra- travel back and forth between the two countries, a lot more musicians from one country playing the other. As a result of that, and eventually in like the mid seventies, the um, musicians union thing, that they just say fine, whatever, you can play wherever. But that restriction and then the slight loosening of that restriction is what leads to the feedback becoming two-way rather than one way. And what were the biggest American influences on Britain and then the other way, from your perspective? Biggest American influences on Britain. Early on, the the big, the big, big influences were Bill Haley and the Comets. And also, Buddy Holly was huge over here compared to how he was in the States. Eddie Cochran was. And obviously, then people like Elvis and Little Richard were obviously big influences, even though... Neither of them toured Britain. Elvis never, and Little Richard not until after he'd stopped having hits. But also, the British folk music scene led to things, things like the skiffle movement, which then led to the beat groups. And the folk music scene was very influenced by the early acoustic recordings of Muddy Waters and Lonnie Johnson, and a lot, of, a lot of these people who were pretty much unknown at the time in the states. And British rock music developed independently in different places. The Liverpool scene was very, very different from the from the London scene. And the London scene was mostly influenced by like 1920s Dixieland jazz and then by Muddy Waters, which which have now, you know, Muddy Waters has obviously now become one of the bedrocks of rock music, but that's sort of retrospective. At the time, he wasn't a rock music person. And, he, and they, were, they were listening mostly to his acoustic things. And people like Lead Belly, Big Bill Brunzi, Those kind of people were very influential very early on. Cliff Richard, Britain's first big rock and roll star, he was promoted as Britain's Elvis, but he was more like Britain's Ricky Nelson, actually, in vocal style and in the sound of his records. And he was very influenced by Ricky Nelson, actually, but he was also covering my babe by Willie Dixon on on his first album you know which is not a thing you would have got from an american performer at that time and this is in like 1957 um i think it, it may be the first ever cover of that song and it's been done by Cliff Richard the most white bred person ever um the closest american equivalent to cliff richard in the popular imaginary now would probably be pat boone so you know Im- imagine pat boone doing the little little walter records you know it, it's that that kind of disconnect in America, there was really no influence at all from any British musicians. The one thing that did happen, weirdly, is the Johnny Otis song, "William and the Hand Jive, which was a big hit in the 50s. That happened because one of Johnny Otis's previous records had been a massive hit in Britain. and um, The Three Tons of Joy, his vocal group, had toured Britain, and they'd seen people doing hand jives, uh, which was a British dance, and they'd, they actually recorded William the Handjive for the British market in the hope that that would become another hit over here. And it wasn't, but it was a massive hit in the States. But the, there was really tiny little British influences, like um, Johnny Cash's version of Rock Allen Line is very clearly copied from Lonnie Donegan's version of Rock Allen Line rather than from Le Belly's. You know, you can tell because he gets the train line wrong he said he says that the rock island line goes down to new orleans which it doesn't but lonnie Donegan had misheard muleen on the lead belly record as new orleans and johnny cash was copying lonnie Donegan. but it's these tiny little influences but there's no as far as i can tell pre-1964, 1964 there is no real major impact from british music on american music at all it's it's all apart from also both bob dylan and paul simon came over to Britain and, again, were very involved in Britain's folk scene in sort of 1962-63. And so you have people like Martin Carthy teaching Paul Simon, Scarborough Fair, those kind of things. And, indeed, a lot of Dylan and Paul Simon's early work is very, 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 very heavily influenced by the British folk music tradition. But even that was... The British folk scene was very influenced by people like Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Peggy Seeger, who were Americans who came over here, So, at best, there's a two-way influence between Britain and America, but most of the time, it's a one-way America influencing Britain and not the other way around thing, until 1964, and then finally it starts meshing and you you start getting obviously the Beatles and the Stones, and then a bit later, the Who and the Kinks and all those bands becoming big in the States too. It seems like even the folk
0: movement in the US was inspired by music from Ireland, so there seems to be a circle there.
1: Yeah, the, that's more, though, not not so much Irish mus- contemporary Irish musicians. It's more those songs had already come to America. A, lo- a lot of Appalachian folk music is stuff where it was originally from Ireland or actually from Scotland and Northern England as well. Not so much from the, the southern parts of England, but a, a lot of Northern English folk music, a lot of Scottish folk music, a lot of Irish folk music became... Appalachian folk music, but not not so much a direct thing. There, there were obviously the odd example, like the Clancy brothers, for example, who were Irish musicians who moved to Greenwich Village. But for the most part, they were playing music that was inspired by Irish music, four or five generations back. You know, often with the place names changed, so places in Ireland would become places in Kentucky or wherever. A couple of the things that you mentioned,
0: from I just want to share from the American perspective. It's, mm. it's a different perception. One is the idea of the Gene Vincents of the world viewed as one hit wonders here, being accepted in England because they were there. From the American people who take music seriously, we've always assumed that there's a cultural love of music in the UK that's different than in the US, which feels more disposable. And culture in general, not just music, but music as well. Same for all of the great jazz artists who end up spending more time in France than in the U.S. It's not because they're any less good. They're not disposable. They just happen to be accepted there because there's a culture more welcoming to that
1: material. I I don't know that it's necessarily a more welcoming culture, although it is in some respects. A big part of it is that Britain certainly is a much more geographically compact place in the States. You know, Britain is roughly the size of New Jersey or somewhere, but has 65 million people in it. So this means if you have 5,000 people in Britain who really, really like Big Bill Broonsie, that's enough to, to do a, sm- a small tour where you can, you can play four or five things in five days. You have 20,000 people in, in the U S who like Big Bill Broonsie spread over 50 plus times the area it's not financially viable to tour around. You know, you've got your one big Bill Brunsey fan there and then 200 miles away the next one, you know. Whereas in Britain, particularly in Britain's major cities, you would have enough people to fill fill a decent-sized venue in most most of Britain's major cities for these people. I'm currently doing an episode on Cream, and one of the things that's talked about there is there was a package tour of... American blues musicians and they only played one, one venue originally, which was the free trade hall in Manchester. And like 200 people from London traveled up to Manchester for that show. Now Manchester's like Britain's second or third biggest city compared to London. This, this is like somebody from New York traveling to Chicago in terms of American cities traveling from New York to Chicago to, to see a gig is not, is not a, a decision you make lightly traveling from London to Manchester to see a gig. It's a, it's a, a bit difficult you have to you have to figure out some accommodation but it's you know a couple of hundred miles you can do it you know and so it it means that subcultures in britain pre-internet pre-widespread communication it was much easier for a subculture in britain to build to a decent size and to be to be able to sustain itself and to be able to sustain musicians coming over whereas that's been the case occasionally in america with other the time we're talking about the sort of 60s and so on in each major american city you would, you would have a subculture. But there would not be any connection between the LA subculture and the, and the New York subculture. You know, the, the, there would be very little travel between them just be, just because of the sheer distances involved. Whereas you, you read all the time about, you know, Eric Burden travels from Newcastle to London to sit in with John Mayall kind of thing going on. You know, and there's much, much more opportunity for personal connections to to build up subcultures there so i think that free free pre-internet free easy communication it was much easier to have an underground in britain you know a a sustainable one um i don't know so much about france and and the jazz musicians and also the other thing of course is that not to say that there is no racism in britain because there very 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 much is but the racism is of a different flavor in Britain, and it's not so immediately obvious. And it, it certainly there was no legal segregation at the time in Britain, so American black musicians, in particular, coming over here, would feel significantly less discriminated against a lot of the time than than they were in the states. So it would feel like a more welcoming place for that for that reason. Now, of course, there is all sorts of different racism, but it was it wasn't the racism they were expecting. So it would feel like a more welcoming place for, in that way as well, which, which is why so many black American musicians became so big over here as well, specifically, you know, far more so than the white ones where, you know, there are you know, Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran's and so on became big over here. But in general, most of, most of the people that Britain took to its heart that weren't really huge in the States were black, you know.
0: Do you know much about the inspiration of Neapolitan melodies like songs like Volare there are so many of oh, these that, that stuff. Uh, there are these Italian yeah. songs that ended, yeah. ended up getting rewritten in the US with me, with yeah. English lyrics but they're yeah. all these beautiful Italian melodies
1: yeah, I actually I haven't looked into that stuff very much. Uh, there's there's obviously, yeah, like you say, there's Velari, there's things things like it's now or never, the the Elvis track which was originally Oslemeo, all that kind of stuff. A lot of the reason for that seems to have been copyright stuff. But a lot a lot of these things were songs where. where where the, the melody was in the public domain or where the people thought the melody was in the public domain and they didn't look too closely. And so they'd slap a new set of lyrics on it and copyright it. People like Hugo and Luigi, the, the producers who did uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, did all that kind of thing. And obviously... I haven't looked into this stuff in as much detail because it only tangentially connects to rock music. But of course, so many of the great crooners of the 50s and early 60s, Frank Sinatra's Dean Martins and so on, were of, of Italian ancestry. And so that Italian culture is there very, very strongly. But it's not; it's not something I've looked into all that deeply. So I wouldn't want to like say too, say too much about it but yes there the, the was there was a thing for that in the particularly around sort of like 1963 right be, right before the Beatles hit America that that was very very big among the, in the sort of the the general pop audience yeah have you read Bob Dylan's new book I, I started it I don't have that much time to get get to any reading that isn't very very directly concerned with what I'm doing next I, I started reading it um it's it's fascinating to me. Dylan is somebody who clearly has a huge appreciation of particularly late 50s, early 60s popular song. And do you know his most recent album, the, the one from like last year, the year before? It is absolutely packed with references to the songs of his youth. He'll just be throwing out th- things about pink pedal pushes and red Cadillac and a black moustache and all these Lines from Sun Records going in there, in a way he used to do with the Bible. is now doing, you know, rockabilly songs. And it's fa- fascinating stuff, actually. One of his strongest albums in decades. And the book seems to be very much along those lines. I mean, the fact that the front cover is Eddie Cock from Little Richard and Alice Leslie, the female Elvis Presley, um, on the Australian tour where... Little Richard decided to, to give up music. That's not a, a photo that gets picked at random. And obviously he didn't do the cover design, but I can guarantee that he had input into that. From, from Like I said, I've not I've not finished reading the book yet, but it's always fascinating to read a songwriter talking about songwriting, and particularly one who isn't just hitting the obvious notes. You know, he's not just talking about the people that everybody else talks about. And I... Look forward to finishing the book and having having a proper opinion on it. But it, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting me. The reason I bring it up is the
0: person who told me about your podcast about a year ago. I learned about your podcast, mm. and the person who told me about it said this is Bob Dylan's favorite podcast. So I don't know if you've ever heard that before. And no, like I all, and like all things Dylan, have no idea if it's true or not.
1: Uh, <laughs> I I had I had not heard that. Uh, if it is, then um, I, I just I just hope he hasn't been insulted by anything I've said about him. <laughs> this, this is this is one of the things that bothers me. Actually, I have recently, in the last year or so, started hearing from musicians who, a lot of musicians who hear, listen to the podcast. Nobody as big as Dylan yet, but I've heard from plenty of people who are possibly going to turn up in the story at some point, or who are tangential to the story, or that 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 kind of thing. You know, if I say the wrong thing and this this person decide, decides, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a flabbergasting if, if true. I I had, I had not heard that, um, so I I don't know where your, where your friend got got that from. I, I would I wouldn't know if it's true or not. What I, what I would say is, having listened to his theme time radio show and having read part of that book and so on, it wouldn't surprise me if he w- if he had listened at least to the early episodes. You know, it it, it wouldn't surprise me. I'm fishing in the same pool as him in in certainly in those fifties and early sixties episodes. I, I maybe he did listen to it. He's he's given up by now, you know. Who knows? But um,
0: well, the reason I ask is because maybe your podcast influenced that book. We
1: don't know. If so, I would be very very proud. You know.
0: Um, Tell me about. Are there any influences on the podcast? What motivated you to start? What are the threads that led to
1: this? There are a few. the f- The first thing goes back like more than 20 years, um, I did a music history course at university. And I remember in one of the very early lessons, the lecturers playing a Carl Perkins track and then saying, don't worry, we don't expect you to actually listen to this stuff and enjoy it. You just have to know it exists. And I, I was like, well, I listened to Carl Perkins and enjoy it. And I was, what kind of music history course is it if you are not giving people the tools to appreciate this? And so in the back of my mind, ever since then 20 odd years was this thought maybe I could do something that would teach people how to appreciate give people the context so they could listen to Carl Perkins and appreciate it so they could listen to Jesse Belvin or whoever because a lot of this music yes it certainly the music I cover in the early years is from a very very different culture and it's easy to see why somebody would just dismiss it but it's so rewarding. I want to give people the context where they could where they could appreciate it properly. From from that, then I wrote a few books over the years, mostly while still working a day job. I I did one called California Dreaming, which is sort of like a mini mini version of what I do with this the big podcast. It covers the LA music scene from 1960 through to 1970, and it covers all the different threads. So you have, you know, the beat the Beach Boys and Phil Spector and um, Love and the Turtles, and it it's much, 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 much smaller scale than what, I, than what I'm doing now. But it showed me that that kind of thing can work. And I originally planned to do a book series along the lines of my California Dreaming book, A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. And it was going to be a much, much smaller scale thing that I'm doing now. It's still going to cover 500 songs, but it's going to be like a thousand words on each one. 10,000, 50,000 word books, you know. The shortest podcast episodes I've done have been like 3,000 words. So the most recent one was more like 30,000. So, you know, there is... But that, that was my original plan. I was going to do the same kind of thing. But then I lost some freelance work I was doing, so I had more time available to me than I thought I thought I was going to. So, I, you know, I thought might as well do do something big. But then also, I heard a podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones, which I don't like to make too much of a connection of it because a lot of people... Sort of lump me in on with that on social media and tag the bloke who does Cocaine and Rhinestones in, and I get the impression that he's rather sick of it. Like I, like I, I'm sort of some sort of tribute act to him or something. <laughs> but Cocaine and Rhinestones is a country music podcast, and what I got from that is he told stories the same way I tell stories, using the same kind of narrative tricks I had used in other non music writing. I'd written books on the books of uh, TV criticism and comics criticism and stuff, and I'd done this sort of interweaving narrative, odd things in that which I hadn't really done in my music books until then. And hearing Cocaine and Rhinestone showed me, firstly, that you can do that kind of writing that I've been doing in other media about music, and secondly, that the podcast format really works for this because you can excerpt the music, you, you can do all that kind of stuff. And so that made me think, okay, the idea I had for the series of books, if I do it as podcasts, then It'll work better. And my, my original thought was, as much as anything else, that the podcast would be promotional material for, for a series of books. You know, I was still thinking in my head, books. And I have put out books of the podcasting. But it turned out that the podcast became the big thing. And it has become surprisingly popular. But I expected it to have a, f- a few listeners. But it, it has become surprisingly popular. And I couldn't be more pleased about that. Because I, I, I genuinely think I'm doing excellent work you know not to sound big-headed not to sound arrogant but i think i think i do what i do well and the potential for for what it can do only revealed itself to me over over the first few episodes and then i got all into it far more so you know i mean even in the very earliest episodes i'm doing the interlinking things you know basically the the entire first six episodes are all about the carnegie hall concerts of the 1930s uh, 1938 and everything that comes from that but I think you can hear very early on, I, I start to think, hang on, there is potential here for something really special and it takes off. But yeah, the initial things are the u- university, popular music history course, and then cocaine and rhinestones, yeah. I love that in the Doors episode, recent episode,
0: I don't think the Doors even form as a band until 40 minutes into the episode. It's yeah, fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've, I've done a lot of that stuff because a lot of the time, I did that with, with the Doors one. I did that with the Velvet Underground one. I did a similar thing with the Birds episode on 8 Miles High. So Somebody like the Doors, there is this image of them that in the popular consciousness. And that image is a very two-dimensional thing which misses out so much of why they became who they were, what it was they did, and so on. And... The more interesting story is to see how these things grow from, from influences from jazz, from influences from influences from transcendental meditation, from all these kind of things, and how all that plays into the story. You can do the oh yeah, Ray Manzarek was walking down the beach and he met he met his his old friend Jim Morrison. Jim said, "I've got some songs for you," and you you can start the story there, and it's an okay story. But if you start the story with the the formation of Pacific Jazz Records in the early fifties, then it's it's suddenly much more interesting. Yeah, to me at least. Um,
0: Me me as well. The the 8 Miles High episode's incredible. And I've sent it to many musician friends who send me back. This is so inspiring. You know, seeing the roots, Ornette Coleman and um, uh, really John Coltrane and then uh, Ravi Shankar and how that played into getting to 8 Miles High. In some ways, that's an interesting one because it doesn't really seem to talk about the song at all. It's it's talking more about the influence of jazz and and psychedelic Indian music to create this new
1: sound. Yeah, yeah. And, of of course, sometimes sometimes that's the case. A lot of the early episodes, it's very much song-focused, and there are still occasional very song-focused episodes. But with 8 Miles High, obviously, that hangs on that song because... The de- 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 de comes from Coltrane's in India and, and that kind of thing. But Eight Miles High is a point in a line. It's it's not the whole thing itself. And that's, that's one of the big things that the whole series is. All of these songs are important, but they're not important in isolation. They're important because of how they connect one thing to another thing. They're important because of their place in a much, much bigger network a network of influence and of back and forth across generations and across continents and so on and it's it's not just about the individual song the individual record it's not just about the individual genius composer there are genius composers there are genius performers but those geniuses come from somewhere and they influence other people you know a genius who sits alone in his room and it never interacts with anybody else might as well not exist you know and so it's all about showing showing how one of the things I say a lot, particularly in the early episodes, is there's no first anything. You can always trace a trace a bit of music back to something earlier, but then also you can always move forward from there. You know, I, I the thing where I talk about where how the intro from Johnny B. Good traces back to like 1912, or I might be slightly wrong with the date there because you know, this was a few years ago. I did that episode. Not everything is front of brain, but I think. So something like eight miles High is more impressive in a way when you realize that it's not just come from nothing that it's, it's part of this big tradition and you can see how it's come from Coltrane being influenced by Ravi Shankar and I think that makes makes it more impressive that they're bringing these things into the, the folk rock idiom in their case you know where does your uh, personal musical taste lie I like about Eighty percent of what I've covered in the podcast so far. I try not to talk too much about my personal musical tastes, purely because what I, what I try to do with the podcast is make every single episode seem like the best case for that record and that artist. And so, if if I if I say I don't like artist x but i do like artist y then people listening to it will listen knowing that i don't i don't like this band in the first place so so they, they look for negatives about the band in the episode and so i try to keep my personal taste a little bit distanced from the the podcast if you like but at the same time it, it is a fact i've written books on the beach boys the monkeys the kinks so people can know that those are favorites of mine i grew up listening to lots of old blues records. My dad was a hippie and listened to sort of Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, those kind of things. My mum my was listening more to David Bowie, Simon and Garfunkel. And I grew up on all that stuff as well. And then I moved backwards and forwards in, in, my own, in my own appreciation. I collected like lots of Dixieland records and swing records and stuff when I was a kid. But also I moved forward and I've listened to a lot, lots of, sort of punk and post-punk and indie music and stuff like that. There are there are genres that I that I'm not so keen on, but it's more that there are artists I'm not so keen on within within those genres or genres I'm I'm less familiar with. I'm not quite a musical omnivore, but my tastes are for particular timbres, particular structures, particular things that don't quite map onto genre, but like. The next few gigs I'm going to, I'm going to go and see Steve Earle next week. I'm seeing um, Johnny Eccles from Love the week after. I'm seeing Pulp um, in July. I'm seeing John Cale in August. I'm seeing Martin Carthy in October. I'm seeing They Might Be Giants in November. Those are some of the people I'm going to see live over the next few mo- months. You know, I have a particular love for, as, as you can probably tell from the episodes, for 1950s la and B music, your Richard Berry's, your Johnny Otis's, um, Johnny Guitar Watson, uh, all those, all those kind of people. I, I like New Orleans piano music, Fats Domino, Doctor John, those kind of people. But I'm I'm missing out as much as as much as I'm cooperating here. You know, I I, I have such a deep love for so many forms of music. It, it's it's hard to neatly categorize. You know, understood.
0: Have you found out that any of the stories that you've told in the podcast, in past podcasts, have turned out not to be true?
1: Not so far. I live in fear of that. Um, I, expect it, I expect it to be the case. You know, I wish that I'd been able to leave this podcast until after uh, Mark Lewison had finished his Beatles uh, trilogy of biographies. Because Lewison's first Beatles biography, which only covers up to Love Me Do, rewrote their history so profoundly... That I am sure that there are going to be things in his next two books where I go, "Oh my God, did I actually say that? yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I am I am absolutely certain that the Beatles history is going to be substantially rewritten over the next decade as Lewis gets his other two books out. I usually try and be very clear about this, but sometimes there are multiple versions of a story, and I will tell the story that makes the version of the story that makes the most narrative sense, and there are other possibilities. And I try and be very clear about that, but sometimes people will say, no, I really do think this other version of the story is what happened. But as far as I can recall, so far there has been no case where I have said something something of any substance that is actually definitely wrong. There have been times when I've misspoken or when there's been like an aside that it's been if, if you look on the podcast website there's usually an about on many of the episodes there's a little of section where it'll be like yeah, i pronounce pronounced walk wisconsin as walkisha which people still pull me up about five years later even though i've put a note on there saying that <laughs> but there are, th- there are things of that nature and obviously one expects that as there's more scholarship as you find out more there will be things that turn out to be wrong but so far touch wood I've not said anything outright wrong um, on any sort of real major scale. No. Tell me about um, trad jazz. Okay. um, Trad jazz is a peculiarly British phenomenon of the fifties. Basically the kind of person who I I am, the rather nerdy scholarly music lovers who investigated musical history and found that the music they liked best was Dixieland jazz of the 1920s. There were some, some of them who would very specifically say things like, that Louis Armstrong ruined jazz music and everything after, after him is dreadful. And they, they were trying, particularly to emulate people like Sidney Bechet, who were sort of pre-Armstrong. And they had this very sort of, many of them had this sort of very rigid rules rules-bound idea as to what jazz should be. And it was music that was from New Orleans up to uh, and including 1924 and no later, basically, this this kind of thing. And they would try and recreate that in a sort of scholarly preservation kind of way, very much like folk musicians and so on. But this weirdly became a massively popular genre in Britain in the 50s. Massive, massive genre. One of those weird flukes where something something's more or less inexplicable. But there were some people in the trad jazz movement who were a little less rigid and a little less rule bound than the others who yes they liked playing traditional dixieland jazz music but they liked other forms of music that were sort of related to that a lot of them particularly loved blues a lot a lot of them particularly loved jug band music and things like that and from the trad bands playing some of this other music is where you get this skiffle boom that came along in 1956 uh, from from records made in 1954 but where people playing washboards and stand and tea chest basses and so on playing old old lead belly songs that comes out of the trad jazz boom and even more than that a bloke called chris barber who was the preeminent trad jazz trombone player he started bringing over American individual musicians to perform backed by him and his band. He brought over Muddy Waters. He brought over Sister Rosetta Tharp. He brought brought over Sonny Terry and Ronnie McGee. He brought over Louis Jordan. All these kind of people and had them play backed by his band and tour Britain backed by his band. And this is where the British blues boom comes from. This is where the Rolling Stones and Manfred Mann and every British uh, the Yardbirds, all of those bands learned about this music because of the efforts of basically one man, Chris Barber, bringing bringing, bringing over all his fa- all his favorite performers to play with a bunch of Dixieland musicians who were playing trom- trombones and cornets and stuff. Just wonderfully weird recordings of Muddy Waters playing Hoochie Coochie Man backed by a Dixieland jazz band. I think it really works actually, but that 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 was a huge huge. Cultural movement in Britain in the from about 1946 through to about 1962. um, Richard Lester's first film, the direct who obviously went on to direct Hard Days Night and all these kind of things. His first film was a cheapy quickie called It's Trad Dad, featuring uh, all these trad jazz bands. Plus, for some reason, Chubby Checker and uh, Del Shannon as well. It was the kind of teen fad where where you would have cheapy films made of it even even though the people doing it were these you know, people who would get into fur, furious arguments over who played banjo on some track from 1923,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> you referred to it, I believe, as a back-to-basics movement. And, yeah. And I want to talk about the back-to-basics back to as a recurrent theme because it seems like oh, yes. music continually gets, there's a new thing, and then it gets built up, and variations come, and it grows, and then yeah. maybe 10 years later, there's this, revolution
1: where we go back to the basic version yes absolutely and we're just getting to that in the podcast at the moment you know we've we've just gone past sergeant pepper and all these kind of things and we're now we're now getting to a point where all the british blues bands start to become big again it it is it is a recurring thing and it's, it seems to happen on every kind of scale, so like in in the course of the Beatles' career, for example, you have them starting out with "Love Me Do" and then getting into the, the big, Sergeant Pepper kind of things, and then going, "No, we need to be we need to be a little four piece band again and doing the get back sessions." You you have it over longer periods, like like I say, the trad jazz movement was was a back to basics movement in reaction to modern jazz, to you know, your Charlie Parkers and your John Coltranes and so on, saying, "No, the the real the real thing is." these these records from 1924 and um, punk is in many ways this is the same kind of thing it, absolutely you know three chords and the truth yeah uh, you know, the skiffle movement was was that and it it's it something that happens over and over again i think it happens within bands careers it, it also happens generationally though i think as people come along who you know if if you're a 15 year old kid you can't make sergeant pepper in your, in your parents garage you know you you possibly could now with you know synthesizers and multi-tracking and so on on a laptop but you know 19 1967 you you can't make sergeant pepper in, in but you you can play louie louie you know so th- then you get you know the, the stooges or whoever coming coming out and then not not all the time but a lot of these bands then become more musically sophisticated then want to grow then want to expand their own horizons they want to experiment and and then you get you get five ten years later another load of teenagers coming along who are playing louis louis again or whatever you know and i think as well there is a case that people's tastes only get so sophisticated and people need to be led in certain ways and the audience for popular music also ages out every so often certainly in up up to through the 80s most rock musicians or whatever making music for people in a particular age bracket and people stop paying attention to music as they grow older they get kids they have a mortgage to pay that kind of thing and you have a you have a new group of people whose ears need to be trained to get to to get to more sophisticated music to get to more complicated music and this this combination means that means that music is or was very very cyclical i don't know to what extent that's still the case i suspect with the access to everything all the time world we live in now. I suspect it's possibly not not as much the case now, but of course I don't know because I'm a middle-aged man myself, you know, so I, I, I don't know what the kids are listening to, you know. Using the trad jazz example of,
0: you know, music ended basically with Dixieland jazz and everything yes. since then is no good. I had the uh, opportunity to work with ACDC and right. to ACDC, the end of music was Chuck Berry. Like since Chuck Berry, nothing good happened, and they, yeah. in their minds, they're carrying on the Chuck Berry tradition,
1: and that's it—nothing in between. Well, and of course, you can, you can clearly hear that, but at the same time, they are clearly not doing the same thing as Chuck Berry. Yes. So you know, you, you would never mistake an ACDC record for a Chuck Berry record, yes. and uh, and even if you are trying to to recreate an earlier sound, much more much more accurately than they're they're doing. You know, even if you sit down and just play Chuck Berry riffs. The fact that you are playing a Chuck Berry riff now makes it different from Chuck Berry playing the riff in the fi- the fifties. You know? like the Borges story, Pierre Menard, the author of the Quixote. You know, so- somebody tr- sitting down and trying to write the whole of Don Quixote, exactly exactly as Cervantes wrote it, is producing a different book because it's the, the it's the not world the same. It's a different anymore. world. The co- the context yes.
0: changes. It means something different today.
1: Absolutely. And so, British trad jazz was trying to recreate what the Dixieland jazz musicians were doing, but of course what the Dixieland jazz musicians were doing was trying to progress. They weren't trying to recreate anything, you know, and the, that, that in itself is all, is always a tension. Every back to basics movement is doing something different from the basics that they think they, they think they're going back to. And that's, that's why we have different words for these things. That's why, that's why we have more than five years worth of records available, you know, because, Punk does not sound does not sound like fifties rock and roll music. You know, ACDC do not sound like do not sound like Chuck Berry. The Beatles making the Get Back sessions do not sound like the Beatles in nineteen sixty two. You 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 can't go back, but you can try and take new lessons from from the old things, and you can go down new unexplored paths from the from the start. You know, how important is Elvis to the overall story? Very 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 important. He is the sort of the reason why rock and roll became a cultural phenomenon rather than, rather than being a kind of music, if if you like. So he transcended music. Is that, that the idea? He became a thing in the culture. You know, yeah. John Lennon talking about going and seeing Elvis films and seeing seeing all the girls screaming and thinking that looks like a good job, you know. Elvis invented the rock star, you know. Bill Haley had sold more records than Elvis early on, you know. But I think I believe "Rock Around the Clock" is still the best-selling vinyl single ever. But you know, Bill Haley was just a bloke. He was he was just just a singer. Elvis was a rock star and. Elvis was the first rock star really I mean again there are always precursors for any cultural phenomenon you can look back to Johnny Ray you can look back to Frank Sinatra for examples of the kind of thing that Elvis was in the culture but Elvis combining that kind of presence with this particular kind of music is what made rock and roll into a thing that we're still talking about 70 years later in a way that we don't talk about other earlier musical movements in the in the same way. Elvis Elvis also fascinates me because he is the first person to hit a lot of the problems that that other artists hit later on. Because he is the first rock and roll star to hit a career slump and have a comeback and try and have a have a second act and try try and deal with all the problems of what does it mean to be a rock star in your thirties and forties, you know? Which obviously then all the other stars since had to deal with and they often dealt with it in a different way than Elvis but Elvis gives you like a model of what to do and a model of what to avoid for, for all the all the musicians that came after him and also Elvis is such a racially problematic figure that he embodies a lot of a lot of the contradictions involved in talking about rock music at all which is the way that it moved from being a music made primarily by black people to a music made primarily by white people and to what extent that's cultural appropriation to what extent it is a normal process of give and take to to what extent you can extricate Elvis's incredible artistry from the fact that there were other Similarly talented artists who never, never had his level of success because of their race, all those, all those kind of things play into play into Elvis's story as well. And he is fascinating in many, many ways. He, he's possibly the the single most fascinating figure in the whole of rock music history. I've got one more episode on Elvis lined up for in about a year's time, and there's a lot to say about the end of Elvis's career, which I don't think people have touched on very much. Although the re, the recent Baz Luhrmann film did a little bit. It often gets misunderstood in a way that a lot of the stories i talk about in the in the podcast get mis get misunderstood you know but yeah he he is a fascinating central figure i mean there's um kinky friedman tells a story i don't i don't know if it's true or not but he, he tells the story of uh, going to, going to borneo and there were pe- isolated people there who only knew three words in the english language elvis jesus and coca-cola you know and that's uh <laughs> i think he has lost a lot of his cultural prominence again in the last 20 to 30 years you know as the generation that grew up with him has slowly died out but you you can't tell the story of rock and roll without a lot of talk about elvis and he he did change change everything you know john lennon said before elvis there was nothing and of course there was but people didn't know about it you know
0: who were the other linchpin key artists in the story
1: The way I've been trying to structure structure the story so far is to have two or three artists who I'm telling their story through through multiple episodes while hitting the other ones. Not all of them are artists. Well, for example, John Hammond is possibly the most important figure of all in the whole of 20th century musical history, and he's going to come up a lot more. For people who don't know, John Hammond, he was the person who suggested that Benny Goodman integrate his band in the 1930s. He was the first person to put on Jazz and blues music in Carnegie Hall, and to and to move that music into a concert setting, he discovered Billie Holiday. He discovered Aretha Franklin. He discovered Bob Dylan. He discovered Bruce Springsteen. He discovered Stevie Ray Vaughan. He discovered Leonard Cohen. You know, like fifty-year career. So John John Hammond turns up a, a lot in the in the podcast, mostly in background roles, but he's there a lot from the very first episode on. Johnny Otis is a massive, massive figure in the in the story of the fifties, and he's going to turn up again a little bit later on. But you know him discovering little richard producing big mama thornton's hound dog getting the robins together who became the coasters he is he is one of the pivotal figures there elvis is a pivotal figure and sam phillips in the background again and then in the 60s it's obviously been the beatles the beach boys because of their preeminence in the american music industry at the time because phil spectre and Bob Dylan, although I haven't done that many episodes on Dylan, but, and will be doing episodes on Dylan's songs as well as on Dylan himself. So he, an enormously influential figure, you know. the yeah, end in the 60s, it is spectre for making record production considered an art in itself. There, there were plenty of, to my mind, better record producers before him, but he was the first one to make the record producer as auteur a thing. And then sort of Motown and Stax as entities, possibly Steve Crocker as an individual as well. And those, those are the big ones for much, much of the 60s. Um, I don't want to do too much in terms of talking about the future because, it's you know, spoilers in a way, but Bowie is going to be one of the... In the same way that I've done a, an episode on a Beatles song for every year of the '60s, I'm probably going to do an episode on a Bowie song for every year of the '70s. You know, uh, because he interfaced with so many different trends and uh, and was so connect, so connected with so many of them. And there were going, there were going to be artists like that, but to the point we've got to now in the narrative, it's yeah you know, the Beatles, Elvis, Johnny Otis, Sam Phillips, John Hammond, and, and Dylan are the, like the. You pull any of them out and the story is different, you know. Most of most of the others, you know. The Rolling Stones, for all that they became massive and huge and are going to have more episodes and all that kind of stuff, you can pull the Rolling Stones out of the story and another band takes their place. You can't pull the Beatles out of the story and, and have somebody else take their place. You know, you can't pull Elvis out and have and somebody else take their place.
0: Yeah, if you watch any uh, documentaries about the Rolling Stones, there's always references to the Beatles, and if you watch anything with the Beatles, there's rarely a reference to the Rolling Stones. Ex- ex-
1: exactly, exactly, yeah. And and that's not to, that's not to downplay the Stones no, as musicians or, t- or, or their cultural influence or any, anything like that. Obviously, obviously, they had great influence, and there were many many bands who very explicitly copied the Stones. Whether you look at the Stooges or Aerosmith or whatever, you know, it's not to say they weren't influential, but they were the one that became biggest of a number of very similar blues bands playing at a, a similar time in a, a similar area. One of the others would have had that if, if it wasn't them. The Beatles were something different. Elvis was something different, you know. And then later on, Bowie is something different, you know.
0: Do you see Led Zeppelin as being a key figure going forward,
1: or maybe no? Yes and no. They're going to have multiple episodes devoted to them, but they're not going to be as massive a, a part of the story as some of these other people I've talked about, they are a massively important link in a chain, rather than like a new starting point. If you see what I mean, mm-hmm. I mean you can tell if you go back and listen. I have been slowly building up to Led Zeppelin forming for most of the '60s. You know, I think Jimmy Page first entered the story in the first Beatles episode, actually, in a very minor role. You know, I, I've talked about him. I've talked about um, I've talked about John Paul Jones already, and these these people are going to, you know. They are a massively important part of the story, but they're not like a central figure in the way some of these other ones are. Yeah, they're like multiple episode band rather than a seven episode band. Understood.
0: In one of the episodes, you talked about Dexter Gordon's music teacher in Los Angeles.
1: Samuel Brown. Samuel Brown. Yes. Yes. So, what do we know about Samuel Brown? Right. He he was an astonishing figure. He was the joint first black person to become a teacher in LA at all and he was a scarily talented musician and he was teaching an inner city LA group of mostly black I, th- I think solely black kids and they wanted to learn about their music and he he, he taught them the the proper the proper rudiments of music but he brought he brought in guest speakers into into class. This is into a normal high school. He brought in Lionel Hampton. He brought in W. C. Handy, the per, the person who was credited as inventing the blues. He brought in Nat King Cole. He brought he brought in William Grant Still, who was the the first great Black American classical composer. He brought these people these people in to give guest lectures to to the to the kids. And if you look at the people he taught, he had. Big J McNeely, who was the great honking R&B saxophone player of the 50s, he had Dexter Gordon, he had uh, Art Farmer, he, he had Don Cherry, the great jazz trumpet player, used to skip school at his school to go and sit in on Samuel Brown's classes elsewhere. Then if you look at, um, I don't have a full list in front of me, but pretty much every one of the great Central Avenue musicians it seems to have gone to school and had music lessons from him jesse belvin who um i mentioned him a few times he was one of the he died tragically young but he, he co-wrote earth angel for the penguins and these kind of things he was a massive massive influence he was he was taught by him um, i think Etta james was taught by him if, if people go and sort of just google samuel rodney brown and find, and look at the list of people he taught he taught half the black musicians to come out of la and they all credit him as being like yeah, one one of his um, students said he was he was like Miles Davis or Charlie Parker. He was that influential to them. Yeah, and it's just an example of what of the difference that one teacher actually teaching the the kids can make. And the, again, the fact that this was the the first black teacher in, I, th- I think in California, certainly in L.A. at all. It it it's just. An, an extraordinary story and somebody somebody needs to do a, a proper biography of him uh, he taught at jefferson high and without him popular music for the last 70 years would be totally totally different and uh, some, somebody needs to do a proper biography of him it's not it's not my area of expertise but he, he is you know if, if there's somebody out there who wants to wants to do that please go and do it you know i properly. think even mentioned barry white as modern as barry white Yes, yeah, Barry Barry White was an, was another of his students, yes. Bar, Barry White was somebody who was, um, he he was a, a sort of child prodigy. People have made claims that he played on a lot of 50s R&B stuff. He, he didn't actually, he was like 11, 12 when some of these records were, were being made that people talk about him playing on. But certainly by, by his early teens, he was already doing session work and he was producing by his late teens. And, and in the 50s, he, he was one of Samuel Brown's students. Yeah, this is the importance that this man had. Basically, you pick an L.A. black musician or vocalist from any time from sort of like 1948 through 1955-ish, or through 1965-ish, there's a 50-50 chance at least that Samuel Brown was their music teacher. You know, extraordinary, extraordinary man. And it sounds like it's it's not even so much that he was a teacher
0: because the story that you told about the trad jazz person, the one person who influenced the whole uh british yeah. blues scene
1: he wasn't a teacher no no uh chris barber yeah he he this this is another another thing that sort of runs through runs through the whole podcast the way that tiny decisions by one person can have major major ripples in the case of chris barber the really <laughs> the really fascinating thing for me is chris barber for people who don't know was a trad jazz trombone player um and he was the one who i, I said earlier he brought over muddy waters he brought over Otis span he brought over sister rosetta tharp all these people but he wasn't even originally intending to, to be a musician he went to a trad jazz gig and the trombone player at the front in the band was getting sick of it he, he spoke to the kid in the first row hey kid want to buy a trombone how much uh like five, five pounds and six shillings Oh, however much it was and Chris Barber happened to have that exact amount of money on him so he bought a trombone <laughs> and because of because of that one decision we have Lonnie Donegan's skiffle band which which led to the um the whole uh, British rock and roll music we had we have all the the blues influence on Britain's music comes comes from Chris Barber the Reading festival the, the second biggest rock festival in Britain and the longest running was founded by Chris Barber the marquee club which is where all the bands like the the who and the the stones and everybody played in the early years founded by Chris Barber the whole of any british music made after about 1954 would not exist without chris barber at all and that just happened because the trombone player happened to be happened to be wanting to sell his trombone on a day that chris chris barber was in the front row and had the exact right change and that that's <laughs> On on these tiny things, the world turns, you
0: know. Those are the kind of things that make me believe that there's some higher wisdom involved in what's going on, because it's too much. It's too, too, too too much. I was doing research for a, a project related to one of the Beatles, and I spoke to Mark Lewison, and he said he's not a believer. Lewison. And... He had just finished the first volume of the, you know, 1,000-page volume of The Beatles up until the time I think
1: that they may have... Yeah, it, it's, it's up to the first single, yeah. It, up it to goes the first, the end of yeah, so it's 1,000 <laughs> yeah. pages uh, up to the first single. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's the short version. The, 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 he, he put out the 900-page short version and the 1,700-page long version of the biography up to, up to the release of Love Me Too. <laughs> exactly. Know, so,
0: yeah. And he said, yeah. I'm not a believer, and having just done this research there are so many coincidences and so many things that went right yeah it's impossible it couldn't yeah. have happened the way that it actually happened could not have happened
1: yeah absolutely yeah and th- this is a, this is a thing you find over and over and over again and again i i i wouldn't want to say if it's like a, a higher power or whatever because i mean be, the alternative is how how many other times did something go wrong and we and we missed out on something better than the Beatles? You know, we we we, we can't know, but the, there there were so many so many of these weird coincidences all through the, all through the story, all all through every story. It, it's really really odd. And the other thing is the the weird sort of clumps of people you get. You know, you you read biographies of Motown stars and you, you'll see. Yeah, well, I, I was at sc- at school with one of the Four Tops and we went round to Smokey Robinson's house and then the, Smokey Robinson was talking to Aretha Franklin and, you know, it's just like... And this is in, like, 1955 or whatever. The, the fact that, you know, Smokey Robinson and Aretha Franklin knew each, knew each other when they were teenagers, you know, uh, how do you get that much talent in, in such, such a small area, you know? And there are two, two ways of looking at it. You can look at it as, as if it's, like, fate or providence, but you can also look at it as how many more Smokey Robinsons and Aretha Franklins are there out there that ended ended up working in McDonald's, you know? And that's a thought that keeps you up at night, you know, if you think of it that way, you know? It, it, but yeah, the, the, there are weird, weird coincidences happening all, all the way through the story, and obviously I, I highlight those quite a lot, you know?
0: In the Bill Haley episode, you mentioned that he was just a bloke, not uh, remarkably talented, but he worked very hard, and he worked hard enough that we know who he is now. Yes, absolutely. Are there other examples of artists who just it was just through grit that they were able to uh, break through?
1: I think that that's the case for a lot of artists, particularly in, particularly in the fifties and uh, particularly American artists. It seems to be that. Once British bands start being big, because Britain has a much more centralised media and much more centralised scenes, you can go go in three weeks from having your first rehearsal to having your first number one record kind of thing, which happens a a lot in the story. But on on the other hand, you've got people like... So, somebody like Jimi hendrix he was immense he was obviously immensely talented and obviously immensely charismatic and so on but he had spent years and years and years honing his craft playing for the Isaac brothers playing for little richard playing all these kind, kind of um wilson pickett all these big soul and r&b stars and he was it was just playing rhythm guitar for them and learning learning his craft learning his trade and he, he was working a, a lot and there are people who are going to be coming up in the 70s who are like that as well from from Britain. Uh, I mentioned Bowie before. Bowie is an example of somebody. He was trained from like 1964 on to be a rock star. He didn't get anywhere until 1969. He didn't really become Bowie until about 1972, you know. And he, he just kept plugging along. So did Mark Bolan, who started out very, very, very connected with Bowie. You know, or there's a sort of running joke in the podcast about rod stewart keeping almost being in famous bands you know he he, he was at the, the king's first rehearsal and but then they they kicked him out he he, he almost played on my boy lollipop by millie and yeah you know, and he was just plugging away and plugging away and plugging away until you know 1969 1970 He's, he suddenly becomes big there's like this decade of him being that annoying person who's trying to trying to get in the bands and is track is trying to be big and nobody really wants him or, he, or he's like playing second fiddle to Jeff Beck or, you know. And there were a, a lot a lot of those in, in the glam era in Britain, a lot, a lot of people come up there who had been trying for a decade to become big. Um, Elton John was another one. He'd he'd been plugging away for years, playing piano in bluesology and all this kind of thing before becoming Elton John. Some some of the British Glam rock stars had had even had like minor success in like 1961-62 was almost like Cliff Richard knockoffs, and then spent another decade grinding away until com- coming up again in the early seventies, and it's it's a it's a more common story than than you would think really, but yeah, Bill Haley was a he was he was almost thinking thinking in the way that a, a lot of the sort of more calculating stars of t- today thinking that you know he he took his band around to place schools and noted the responses of the audiences and changed changes that this and his repertoire to fit what the te- what the teenagers were doing he, was, he would play free shows at schools so that he, so that he could get audience metrics so that, it, so that he could then change his music to fit to fit the audience and th- this is this is how he goes from from being a yodeler to, to being the, the first rock and roll star you know <laughs> You because know, if you listen to his early records, it, it, the things, they're called things like Yodel My Blues Away. And they are accordions and yodeling records, you know.
0: The biggest changes between musical artists of the 1950s through now, how would you describe the difference in
1: who the people are or how you would describe them? there are multiple different changes and to be clear i i am not an expert on much music made this millennium there's plenty of music i like from from the last couple of decades but it it doesn't tend to be anything that is particularly well known or you know i i i know who ed sheeran is i couldn't name you five of his songs you know that that kind of thing and so i wouldn't want to say too much about today except that i i believe that today certainly in britain may not be the case for american stars but certainly in britain becoming a, a certainly a successful musician requires you to have been born in a life of vel- relative privilege because over the last 50 60 years all the ways in which working and lower middle class people managed to become successful have been destroyed there were there was the art college system there, were, there was um strong level of unemployment benefits there were, there were uh, arts funding for things like the arts labs which is where david bowie came through and all these things have been progressively o- over the particularly over my lifetime but even before that they've been destroyed in such a way that now you have to have some form of capital in Britain, I don't know if this is the case elsewhere, but you have to have some form of capital and privilege to become successful at all. And not just in music, but in all the creative arts, you know, um, there is a paucity of voices from outside a relatively narrow band of society at the moment, which wasn't the case in the sixties and seventies in Britain, which were the most, had, had the most opportunities for class mobility and had the most opportunities for people who were from poorer backgrounds to be to become successful in the arts in the in the creative industries generally and and in music in particular, but beyond that I wouldn't want to say. But in just in specifically rock music and discarding all other genres. I say something very early on I think in the episode on Sister Rosetta Tharp, that the story of rock music is in part the story of black men pushing out black women, then poor white men pushing out pu- pushing out black men, then rich white men pushing out poor white men. And I think that is to a large extent the truth. It's not it's not the only truth, um but it is part of the truth and that's partly of course because you know other genres like hip-hop have have become the genres where black performers can be can be bigger you know but that that is the the way that narrative arc goes you know it seems like
0: hip-hop completely trumps that argument though
1: yeah yeah but that that, like i said that's rock music specifically Uh, obviously hip-hop is uh, hip hop starts starts out very very interconnected with it, but quickly quickly becomes its own thing. And yes, um, hip hop and also modern R and B and so on they they are they're still areas where black people have huge amounts of success. And obviously, I think this that's one reason why rock music has become a minority genre because it has become so sort of culturally isolated, and because it because it hasn't had it hasn't had any room for black people and that hasn't had much appeal to a lot of black people obviously with tremendous numbers of exceptions I am not saying black people don't like rock music or black people don't play rock music or anything uh, yeah I, I am would never say that but but it, it is a very 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 white space now that genre is a very white space compared to the demographics of the population at large and I think that's that's for the for the worst of for the genre
0: Tell me about the intermingling of different styles, like how cool jazz worked its way into rock and roll, how bebop works its way into rock and roll, country, R&B, all of these different
1: tangents. Well, what we originally called rock and roll in the 50s was actually a label that was put on multiple different genres to start with. And so rock and roll was always not exactly a hybrid, but a a label, an umbrella label for a multitude of things. When the label was originally used, well, well, not when it was originally used, but when Alan Freed used it, he used it because the term rhythm and blues was already starting to be considered low class, like disgraceful in some way, even though rhythm and blues itself was, had only been voting in a few years earlier to replace race records, yeah. So Alan Freed was using the term rock and roll to describe R and B records, but if you look at fifties R and B, Charlie Gillett I think isolated five different genres. You've got rockabilly, which is essentially that that's hillbilly boogie. That that's there is little or no difference between what Carl Perkins was doing and what people like the Maddox Brothers and Rose were doing a few years earlier. You've got the New Orleans piano music of people like Fats Domino, Lloyd Price, those kind of things, this rolling R&B sound. You've got vocal group R&B, which we now call doo-wop, which is really two genres in itself because West Coast doo-wop and East Coast doo-wop, very, 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 very different things, but they're both emphasising vocal harmony. And then you've got the northeastern bands which of which bill haley is the only one that people really remember but there were a few others like freddie bell and the bellboys who were doing country music but country music copying louis jordan records then to a lesser extent you bring you bring in chess blues th- mostly through the influence of chuck berry who was also very influenced by country music and things like that so, you know, chuck berry himself is almost the epitome of this because because if you look at chuck berry his first record maybelline was was inspired by ida red the old old western swing song and but he was also he was playing a a lot of his guitar lines were taken from louis jordan's guitarist whose surname i can't remember carl something but a lot of chuck berry's guitar lines were taken from louis jordan's guitarist and chuck berry was also influenced by nat king cole you listen to listen to his vocals Chuck Berry is doing Nat King Cole a lot of the time. So right from the start, this, this same label is being apl- applied to Chuck Berry, as is being applied to the Platters, as is being applied to Fats Dominoes, as is being applied to Carl Perkins. So right from right from the start, you have this uh, convergence of different musics. And a lot of the R&B music in particular is always very influenced by jazz. You, know, you can draw a very, very direct line between 1950s... Little Little Richard in particular, but also Chuck Berry, a lot of these sort of piano and saxophone led black R and B records of the fifties. You could draw a very very clear line from them to Louis Jordan, and from Louis Jordan to the the big bands. So Louis Jordan started started out playing with Chick Webb's band. He, he and Ella Fitzgerald were the front people of of Chick Webb's band. Basically, what happens is in the forties it becomes uneconomical for the big bands to tour. So the big the big swing bands break up into three sub-genres, if you like. You have the western swing bands, the, the people like Bob Wills and so on, slim down, get, get rid of the trumpet players and so on, and revolve around the electric guitar, and this is what eventually leads to rockabilly. You have the black bands like Chick Webb's band, they basically slim down become louis jordan and you use electric guitars and very very loud honking saxes to make up for the vol- the volume issue rather rather than having like five saxophone players you just have one bloke playing really loud and you also have the ones who then go off and become bebop musicians but there is still a lot of intermingling between these people you know people like big j mcneely was pl- was playing with the bebop musicians but was also playing uh, early r&b sessions a lot of the atlantic records people um like mickey baker he he started out as a jazz man and he, he moved into playing uh r&b session work before before then becoming part of mickey and sylvia and so on you know johnny otis is the prime example he he desperately wanted to, to play like Joe Jones from Count Basie's band. And he was a you know he was he was a jazz drummer and, a, and vibraphone player and whose first record was Harlem Nocturne. But he en- he ends up making Hound Dog and William the Hand Jive and yeah. You know. So there's always this jazz influence there in the background. And then this gets then gets picked up again in the mid-sixties, mostly by people from LA, the Doors and the Birds and so on, because there is a thriving cool jazz scene there so the the influence of cool jazz becomes some, something that particularly the, the dope smoking musicians on the west coast get get in get into this as a way to show their musical sophistication a lot a lot of these people are people who've come from folk music as well but when they when they open their minds to other forms of music outside folk, they are not just opening their minds to to rock music. They're opening their minds to everything, and so they they start listening to a lot of cool jazz. They start listening to a lot of Indian music because largely because the Blokuvan um, Pacific Jazz the Pacific Jazz label was also a fan of Ravi Shankar and put out his stuff on that label as well. And so you get all these all these influences coming in. In like 1966-67, you start getting Eight Miles High by the Birds, you start getting the Doors records, um, and you start getting this improvisational aspect adding to adding to the music. Not always to the music's um benefit, it has to be said. You some of some of this stuff is really, really good, but a lot of the a lot of the time the rock musicians don't have the chops that the jazz people did, and they're trying to do stuff and not really not really getting it there's there's a sort of a sort of cargo cult element to some to some of the use of improvisation in psychedelic rock music that makes some of it some of it a little painful to listen to these days you know yeah you you're doing John Coltrane but you're not John Coltrane you know and also around this time you start you start getting the influence of avant-garde classical musicians of people people like John Cage the the Velvet Underground episode I did recently is another one where the Velvet Underground don't get together until I think over an hour into the story in that case, because I'm talking about the, how John Cale um, was influenced by John Cage and by a whole history of avant-garde experimental noise composition. And that that gets into rock music, yes, through the Velvet Underground, but also as well through like Yoko Ono's influence on John Lennon. You know, Yoko Ono was part of, was part of the Fluxus art movement with Lamont Young, who is, one of the most abstract composers around, you know, and that influence go, goes into the Beatles as well. And a lot of the time, these people are only taking, not in the case of the Velvet Underground, because John Cale was properly very, very heavily schooled musician, but a lot of the other people are taking sort of surface level elements of these things and trying to incorporate them into into their music. But that can that can sometimes be a good thing in itself. You know, I mean, some of my favourite music actually is, the cheap pop acts who were trying to pick up on psychedelia and didn't didn't really know what it was, other than that you've got a sitar on there, you know, something like Green Tambourine by the Lemon Pipers. It's a ridiculous record, but but uh, and it's, but it cl- works. it's it's yes, yeah, and one of the things that rock music does it does it its best and it seems to have stopped doing over the last 30 or 40 years and that hip hop does a lot. Now is this sort of magpie tendency of picking, picking up little bits from, from everywhere and sticking them together and, you know, just going for the shiny thing, but the shiny thing is shiny, you know? So
0: I haven't heard an episode where you mentioned Dean Martin yet. And I, and right. I thought it's interesting because Dean Martin was both. The reason Elvis dyed his hair black was because of Dean Martin. Yeah. And Jim Morrison clearly was influenced by Dean by Dean Martin singing style.
1: He he definitely was. I yeah, I think the only time I I think I might have mentioned Dean Martin talking about Bob Dylan's response to Dean Martin insulting the Rolling Stones, but that's about yeah. But yeah, I mean Dean Martin was um he, he was clearly very influential on particularly on Elvis. If you if you listen to Dean Martin's 50s stuff uh, and then to Elvis singing ballads, you can very very clearly clearly hear the influence there. He he will possibly come up in passing in a a couple of episodes that I'm I'm going to be doing. He may well come up when I talk about The Doors next and I talk more about Morrison's singing style because, yeah, Morrison was very clearly a crooner and very clearly specifically influenced by Dean Martin. Also, there is going to be some stuff about Frank Sinatra in one episode coming up in the future, and I may talk about Dean Martin there. Other other than that, the only time I talked about him was in a, a bonus episode on Dino, Desi and Billy, because obviously Dino from Dino, Desi and Billy was Dean Martin's son, so there were a lot of these lacunae that I I hope to fill in because there there is so much to talk about That one of the things I'm discovering as I do this eventually you have to incorporate the whole history of the yeah, world it's endless. You know? yes, it's endless. yeah um, but yeah Dean Martin Dean Martin is somebody if if I've been doing hour long episodes when I was doing the the early Elvis ones I, I would undoubtedly have talked about Dean Martin's vocal influence on Elvis the other the other big influence again you were talking about the the neapolitan singing, singing style and stuff like that mm-hmm. and yet I have possibly not covered the white vocal pop of the 50s and early 60s in as much detail as I would if I went back and read the whole thing from the start now simply because I was you know th- this was still in the period where I was doing 25 to 45 minute episodes rather than the m- monsters that I'm doing now and you have to cut out something but yeah it it, it is something that that I'm, I'm going to try and find a way to retroactively bring that stuff bring that stuff into the story.
0: Tell me about the world of message boards and posting. I I know nothing about this world and I'm just curious about it.
1: Well, um I I have basically left my lived my entire life online. I first got online in like 1997 and stuff. I I actually don't spend that much time on message boards and so on now these days because I'm I'm mostly on sort of Twitter and things that like, things like that. But much of my Late adolescence and early adulthood was spent on message boards discussing things like, the, like the Beach Boys in particular, but also other other music things, and they still exist, but not to anything like the same extent. But it, it it was where you would go to have discussions. You you would end up making friends who would say, "Oh, I've got I've got this bootleg. I can send I can send you a copy." That that kind of thing, and particularly in the case of not uncovered bands, but undercovered bands. Much of my knowledge of the Beach Boys, for example, comes from forum conversations rather than from anything that's in books. And quite often in those forum conversations, you'll find out that... The stuff in the stuff in the books was wrong. You read "Look, This and Vibrate Smile" by Dominic Pryor, and he, he he says that Brian Wilson intended "Smile" to be sequenced sequenced as one as one long piece of music. And then you'll have somebody who's gone through all the all the uh, session logs, and he's like, "Nope, this, this is definitely absolutely wrong." Brian actually intended this, and we can tell this because on this date he had these musicians. He talked, yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of that documentation becomes ephemeral. So you can't reference it you can't you can't point to a conversation from 2003 on a message board that's now been deleted and say "This is why I know this thing." Mm-hmm. but a lot of the really deep music obsessives spent much of the early 2000s in particular hanging around on message boards just amassing huge amounts of inform- information often on their very very specific niche niche interests you know like in the case of the beach Boys there would be people who would post. Hundreds of thousands of words, literally over the course of a couple of years, just about the Smile album and the making of that album and this kind of thing. And th- there are still communities like that, the Steve Hoffman board, for example, which I-, I sometimes visit but never post on, which is primarily an audiophile board, but that that has some of the best discussion of vintage music around and so- some of the most accurate discussion. And a lot of a lot of that stuff is people who people who know more about their tiny bits of expert knowledge than the authors who write books that get get made public. And so a lot of of the time when I'm telling the stories in the podcast, I end up sort of busting myths of one kind or another. And often I can usually find enough reference in conventionally published material to do that. But I only know to look in the conventionally published material in the right places because of discussions I, I had there, again, sometimes 20 years ago or whatever. But, you know, stuff sticks with you. Understood beautiful thank you so much for doing this
0: it's a pleasure talking to you and i want to thank you, thank for, you. It's been for the podcast and, I, and i'll i'll share with you it works just as well episodically if you jump around because i have not started from the beginning and listened to every episode i started yeah. by listening to songs that i like and yeah. then have expanded from there and and i'm i jump yeah. around all the time and it works great
1: thank you thanks very much thanks